Hello, everyone, and happy Sunday. Welcome back to Fair Voice. I am your host, Hannah Sirak. I'm so excited to be hosting today's podcast. I'm happy to be back. I apologize for the short break. I had an accident. I'm doing fantastic now, but needed to take a little bit of time off to recover from that. But I am so excited to be back with you today and to be talking about Blake Osler's book with Blake Osler. Um, His book is Exploring Mormon Thought. It's the fourth volume, which deals with the problem of evil. So we're going to do an interview with him that is absolutely fantastic. Really enjoyed recording it. I love the concept of agape ethics, which is throughout his entire series. You should really look into the series. I I recommend it. I think it's a good series. I disagree with him on some things. I agree with him on other things. If nothing else, it'll make you think. It's a very well done series. You can buy it through Greg Cofford Books. Um, as always, Fair Mormon and the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints might have different opinions than me. I speak only for myself. But before we get into it, I wanted to answer a couple more questions that y'all asked me. And I also wanted to let you know, to if you want me to answer a question that you emailed to me earlier, to just email me again. I've been away from my email for a little bit as I was recovering. That email is h-s-e-a-r-i-a-c at fairmormon.org. If you emailed me and I did not respond please feel free to just shoot me another email just so I can see it again. It can be brought up again. I can find it. Um, I got a lot of emails when I was recovering that I just didn't see. And some I responded to, some I didn't respond to. You know how it goes. So feel free to email me again if you would like me to answer any of your questions. So today we're going to do two of our questions just because I need to get caught up on a few of these since you asked me a lot of questions. And I'm excited to answer these for you. The first question that you all asked, well, one of you asked me, that's more accurate, is whether or not I think that Latter-day Saints have to prove everything from the Bible. This is a very good question because I do think there are a lot of interesting things that the Bible does offer us. Like, you know, you have Corinthians 15, 29 for baptisms for the dead. You have a lot of those scriptures that you can use, um, especially to try to, you know, show a Latter-day Saint Godhead. I think that that's really evident in John in particular. You have a lot of scriptures like that that you can use to provide positive apologetics for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints being true. I think we should definitely be on top of those scriptures. I think we should use them and incorporate them. But I, at the same time, think that asking a Latter-day Saint to prove everything about their religion from the Bible is a disingenuous premise. Because if we have other books, we have these books for a reason. Not everything needs to be proven from the Bible. There are a lot of things that can be proven from the Bible. But I, I do acknowledge that it's hard to see other things. And that might because be because we don't know how to read the Bible properly yet. Because, you know, we don't have that same understanding that the gospel authors had when they were writing it. There's a whole host of reasons why we might not be able to show every little thing from the Bible, but I just reject the premise that we need to do that. I I do think that you can, you know, construct a positive argument by saying, here's some proof for the Book of Mormon within the Bible. There's plenty of verses that show that the Book of Mormon is true within the Bible. And then you can kind of go from there and talk about how, you know, the Bible also makes the case for you know, continuing revelation and other things like that. And that becomes extremely important for showing that particular concepts within Latter-day Saint theology are true. So that's the answer to the first question of the day. The second question that I got asked is one that I really particularly enjoy. 
And the second question I got asked was, what is my favorite part about being a Latter-day Saint? I think questions like this are very interesting and very fun. I would say my favorite part about being a Latter-day Saint is the real change that I feel through the Atonement of Christ. That's been something that has been very real for me. There are a lot of good reasons in my mind to become a Latter-day Saint. There are a lot of important things about our theology. I didn't necessarily become a Latter-day Saint because I saw evidence for every single truth claim, because I saw historical evidence for every single truth claim, although that was a very important part of my journey to maintaining and becoming a Latter-day Saint was seeing historical evidence that was something that I prayed about and determined its truthfulness. I, I do think our aversion to, this is a bit of a side tangent, but I do think our aversion to evidence sometimes is inaccurate because we are asked to do things by study and by faith. And included in that is this idea that we prey on things that we have garnered up. I think we do need to have something to pray about. And for me to have something to pray about, that means I do have to to study it out, to find those evidences for, and honestly against, to be able to determine which is true. I think our aversion to evidence culturally isn't really a scriptural imperative so much as it is a misunderstanding of scripture. I could be wrong on that. That's my personal opinion. But as for the, the question... Um, I didn't become a Latter-day Saint because of any of that. That wasn't really what struck me. That's not why I'm still a Latter-day Saint. Why I'm still a Latter-day Saint has a lot to do with the way that I have been transformed by my covenants with my Savior. I have seen myself change because I read the Book of Mormon every day. I have felt that change within me in a more real way than I, I could say about any other type of theology. So my existence as a Latter-day Saint depends on my relationship with Jesus Christ, which is forged through covenants, which is forged through reading the scriptures. We pray to God and God answers us back in the scriptures. I think that's a true principle. Um, but we also pray to God and God will change us according to the desires of our hearts, but also according to our knowledge in a lot of senses. We are given knowledge for a reason. That knowledge allows us to become better. We know that we're going to take our intelligence with us to the next life, but we also know that knowledge is a virtue. I, I remember President Nelson um, in an interview done with The Atlantic talks about how he knows that not he lists knowledge as one of the things that he's going to take with him to the next life because he says that that time is coming soon and i found it really interesting that coupled among virtue and charity was knowledge and i think that that's really true because knowledge is something that allows us to grow closer in our relationship with our savior and also gives us something to share with other people so i would say that my being a latter-day saint has everything to do with the real change that i experienced Another question, I decided to do a third one. I already have the answers for most of these, so I just decided might as well just do a third question while we're still on this podcast. And the question, the reason I still want to do this question is the question is kind of relevant to what we were talking about. So the question is essentially, the question is, does God have an infinite and exhaustive foreknowledge or is God's knowledge not exhaustive? This is a really interesting question, and I'm going to ex explain it a little bit further. This question is very relevant to the podcast, which is why I decided to include it. So this question is asking, does God know every logical possibility, or does God know everything that will happen? So for example, does God know what I'm going to, cho what I'm going to choose 
next for my life. So y'all know I'm in grad school. Does God know whether or not I'm going to go to school again, if I'm going to get a job, where I'm going to work? Does God know that? Or does God know all of the logical possibilities that I could take, but also know the one that I am most inclined to taking and that I could choose to take a different one. I actually lean towards the, the, the latter, not the former. So I don't, I, I'm an open theist in a lot of senses. I do believe that God um, effectively knows what we're going to do. I, I think that he has that, that knowledge to be able to deduce that. But I think that since it hasn't happened yet, it's not knowable, but it is something that he could theorize. That is a personal opinion. There are plenty of people who believe in God's infinite and eternal omniscience in that sense. Um, I will say that I think we need to read the scriptures a lot more carefully on that. I think that it's very clear that God knows us completely. And I think that knowing us completely means knowing what we will what we will be most likely to choose. I do see an imposition on agency, though, if he knows what we will choose 100%. That is a bit of a nuanced answer. Um, there are many faithful Latter-day Saints who hold that position. Um, you can hold either one. There isn't really a straight-up definition of omniscience. I think a lot of the time when we talk about omniscience culturally, we think that it has to mean that God knows everything that will happen. But that, let's turn to the scriptures. It says in Acts 15.18 that known unto God are all of his works from the beginning of the world. I totally agree with that. Um, and then in 2 Nephi 27.27, it says, And woe unto them that seek deep to hide their counsel from the Lord, and their works are in the dark. And they say, Who seeth us and who knoweth us? And they also say, Surely your turning of things upside down shall be esteemed as the potter's clay. But behold, I will show unto them, saith the Lord, of hosts that I know all their works for shall the work of him say that he made it he made me not or shall the thing framed of him say that he that framed framed it he had no understanding question that's a question um so here we see in second Nephi 27 27 that you know God can know previous works which is really obvious but this is an interesting verse doctrine and covenants 38.2. So, Doctrine and Covenants 38.2, this is a section, it's a revelation given through Justice Smith, and this is at a conference. So, we have, thus saith the Lord God, I'm starting with verse 1, thus saith the Lord your God, even Jesus Christ, the great I am, the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the same which looketh upon the wide expanse of eternity and all seraphic hosts of heaven before the world was made. The same knoweth all things, for all things are present before mine eyes. I am the same which spake, and the world was made, and all things came by me. Here we see that all things are present before his eyes. So what does that mean about God's foreknowledge? I think this means that God knows it when, you know, in Moroni 7.22, God knows all things beginning, being from everlasting to everlasting, Behold, he sends angels to minister unto the children of men to make manifest concerning the coming of Christ. And in Christ there should come every good thing. And also in DNC 117, that wherefore I, the Lord, knowing the calamity which should come upon the inhabitants of the earth, shall called upon my servant uh, Joseph Smith Jr. and spake unto him and gave him commandments. So it's clear that God knows the end from the beginning. That's something that is very obvious to us. But 
that doesn't necessarily mean that we as human beings don't have the opportunity to choose in a way that would surprise God. Um, I, I think the chances of that are extremely limited. This is why we're talking about it in a nuanced way, because God knowing everything that we can choose and knowing what we probably will choose. And when I say probably, I'm, I'm talking about with 99.99999% accuracy. We're, we're talking very high levels of accuracy. That still allows us the freedom to choose, whereas God knowing exactly what we will choose 100% doesn't seem to allow us that same freedom. So foreknowledge, therefore, doesn't seem to be uh, the the way that we talk about it culturally, if you read it within the scriptures, because there's multiple different words for knowledge in Greek and in Hebrew, and these words have different meanings than the word to know does um, within our our particular parlance is the best way to put it. Lou mid sorry Lou mid midgley. I don't know why that that's really hard for me to say, but it is said. What is called open theism is a challenge to several of the divine attributes as set out above. This is good news for Latter-day Saints, since we need allies in our own conflict with classical theism. This does not mean that every open theist has a single way of seeing things or that we agree with them on any various versions of open theism. But the fact is, we simply must agree with much of what open theists believe, since what Joseph Smith taught flies in the face of classical theism. For the record, I believe that God knows everything that such a being can know, but I must admit that I have no idea what that means since I am not all that sure about what about much of what I think I know or exactly how I know it, end quote. And he says that we're that Latter-day Saints are firmly open theists. Um, and then, you know, we have other Latter-day Saint thinkers who say that. The reason being that we believe in eternal laws. And this is a very important part of that. So, for example, God cannot draw a square circle. This is a very common example given. If God can't draw a square circle, that means that there is such thing as a square and there is such thing as a circle. And that these things are necessary to have. And I, I do believe that there is a sort of, you know, a sort of idea of what a square is and a sort of idea of what a circle is and that there is a, an eternal law that dictates these things and that God cannot work outside the boundaries of eternal law. So that's how Latter-day Saints might reconcile open theism. But that point aside, please email me if I have not emailed you back. I apologize if I have not. I've been trying my best to respond to all the emails that I received. I received a lot in the last few weeks as I haven't been able to do the podcast. I'm happy to be back. Happy to be talking with you today. Make sure to email me your questions for the next episode at h-s-e-a-r-i-a-c at fairmormon.org. And now I'm so excited to introduce our guest to you today. So today, as I mentioned, we're talking about Exploring Mormon Thought, God's Plan to Heal Evil. It's a book by Blake Osler. You can buy this book at Greg Cofford Books. I have a copy of it. I really liked reading it. Blake T. Osler is a practicing attorney in Salt Lake City. He has been widely published in professional academic journals such as Religious Studies, International Journal for the Philosophy of Religion and Element, the Journal of the Society for Mormon Philosophy and Theology, as well as Mormon scholarly publications, Dialogue, a Journal of Mormon Thought, Sunstone, BYU Studies, and Farms Review of Books. I'm so excited to be with Blake Osler today and to jump right in. Awesome. Thank you. 
So today we're going to be talking about exploring Mormon thought, God's plan to heal evil, which centers around the problem of evil. And we have Blake Oster on. Blake, could you please explain what the problem of evil is? The problem of evil has many dimensions. Um, there's an existential dimension where people feel betrayed. They may believe that God exists, but they don't believe that God is treating them fairly or that the world looks like there's a loving God involved. There's also a logical dimension whereby if God is all powerful and can rid the world of evil and he's all good and therefore would rid the world of evil, it follows that there can't be any evil. And yet it's clear that there is evil. And so logically there's a challenge to the coherence of one's beliefs. Um, and the problem of evil is probably as individual as each person um, is that, you know, confronts mortality. We all confront the problem of evil in different ways. And for some, we get through life with a lot less challenges than others. It's just the way that it is. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's definitely true. I think this pandemic has definitely made that question a lot more present in people's minds. My question for you then is, did God create evil? There are some scriptures in Isaiah that would suggest that God creates evil. I would suggest the better translation is that he creates darkness in contrast to light. And the better response would be that God permits some types of evils um, to occur so that the, his purposes can be achieved. But he doesn't contrive the evils and would not permit evil if he could achieve his purposes without it. That makes total sense. Um, a follow-up question to this is, do other religions believe that God created evil? I know there's the argument um, within Calvinism that evil, evil exists as a secondary cause, that God did not necessarily create it. But I do think that this question is worth exploring. Well, the Augustinian view is that evil is privation, which means that it's merely a lack of something. So if, if there is any evil so for instance you have um, disease which is a lack of health you have um, people who commit evil acts which is a lack of judgment and a failure to choose properly so in the augustinian view all evil because god creates out of nothing what he creates is good but what isn't created what something lacks in creation um, can be evil um, it's a view that doesn't work very well simply because when a person feels pain, the evil is the pain, and merely by feeling the pain, there's uh, a real evil. And evil choices aren't merely a lack of making a good choice, they're an affirmative bad choice. And so it's a, it's a view that doesn't get a lot of traction um, among philosophers, never really has. But it is part and parcel, I think, of a very standard Catholic response to the problem of evil. Could any evil be justified by God? Well, God doesn't have to justify anything to us. Go back to the Calvinistic view. For most of us, um, the view that God would, and this is, you can believe either in double predestination or in single predestination. Double predestination is the view 
but God chooses who he saves and also chooses who is damned. And single predestination is the view that God chooses to, to elect some to salvation, and he leaves the rest that he creates to damnation. He doesn't affirmatively damn them, but by not giving them his grace, he, he leaves them to damnation. I'm not sure it's much of a distinction, actually. But here, it's God's own choice that some people that he could save aren't saved, and they're left to eternal damnation. And if there is anything that is truly um, and eternally evil, it is eternal damnation. And so God himself would have, have to be viewed as culpable for the evil that exists when he could have had a world without evil. That's in the Calvinist view. I would argue that you get much the same result in views that want, don't want to be Calvinistic, but end up denying free will anyway. Um, the Benazian view, the Thomist views, um, and even what's known as Molinism, or the view that God creates um, possible worlds, but there are some possible worlds he can't create because he has to leave free will up to others. But at the end of the day, I think that even Molinism, this view that God um, can't create just any possible world he wants because some possible worlds are actually brought about by people acting freely. Um, in the end, I don't think that it allows for any free will. And so these are views that either make God culpable for evil or in trying to explain how God is not culpable for evil run into intractable logical problems. One of the really important things that you talked about is free will. Could you explain what your view is on the degree to which we have uh, free will and autonomy to act compared to God? Yeah, you know, I'll begin by contrasting it. There, there are a number of views. One is the view that there is no free will at all. This is a very popular view among cognitive scientists and among some philosophers who simply say that our, our notion that we're choosing, that we deliberate, that we have choices among which to choose is simply um, an error. We're mistaken about it and we don't really have free will at all. The second view is compatibilism. Everything we do is caused and in the, in the sense one could say that from, you know, at any time in the past, anything in the future is already fixed, it's already given in the causes that exist, but we're free anyway. It's, it's a view that I argue against in volume one of Exploring Mormon Thought. I don't think it's a view that holds, holds much water, but there are a number of philosophers who accept that view. But by far the best view in my view is what's known as incompatibilism, causal determinism, uh, fatalism, God's involvement in, in causing our acts or bringing about our acts is inconsistent with free will because free will requires that we have open alternatives to us among which we can choose. And so that view is called incompatibilism. And I think it's a view that is one that makes the most sense of our experience is required for moral accountability and um, is required by the Mormon view of matters. That is, um, Lehi distinguishes between things that act and things that act upon and locates our freedom in the fact that we act for ourselves and are not merely acted upon. I think it's another way of saying we're not merely the result of causal influences that act upon us, but we choose ourselves. We are in our we act for ourselves as in essence a first cause of choices that we make. And so I I, I just think that the kind of moral accountability that we find 
um, in Mormonism the, and the entire framework of explaining moral agency in the scriptures um, assumes this view of free will called incompatibilism. You could also call it libertarianism. Um, or you could call it uh, contracausal freedom or categorical freedom. It's had a number of, of names in, in philosophy. Um, but I, I think that the view that we choose among alternatives, we genuinely deliberate and are accountable for what we do is the best view. I actually tend to agree with that. And I think one um, response that many people have given is that if God knows that we can choose from a bevy of choices and he knows that we will choose evil. How then can God be good without preventing that evil from happening? Here we would refer to God's purposes and what he intends to achieve in, in creation and what his purposes for us are. The kind of world that God wants to achieve requires that we be allowed to have, that we have free will and that sometimes we actually be allowed to make choices that are you know, all things considered not for the best and, and or just truly evil. Um, and so God's purposes would entail to one that I argue for is that the kind of the most valuable thing in the universe are loving relationships. And God's purpose for us is to bring us into loving relationship into the unity of the Godhead, the Father, Son and the Holy Ghost. But love, by its very nature, must be freely chosen in the libertarian or incompatibilist sense that I have um, talked about. It has to be the case that a person is free to reject love, to not love, in order for love to be genuine. Love can't be coerced. It can't be inevitable. It can't be given in the causes that are outside of us. It has to be a full-blooded choice of our heart because that is what genuine love requires and is. Uh, and so the most valuable reality that can be achieved requires libertarian free will, but a libertarian free will entails that sometimes people must be left free to actually make bad choices or truly evil choices, even choices that are gut-wrenching and knock the air out of us and, and knock us to our knees. Another reason um, in, for purposes of soul building um, most Christians believe that we're here to learn from our experiences and to make of ourselves better persons than we are. It's called a soul building theodicy. A theodicy is just a fa fancy word for saying God is justified in allowing these kinds of evils. But what God is after is to allow us to choose to be the kind of person that we choose to be. And that we make of ourselves, given the grace and opportunities that he offers us, and what he's after are fully divine beings. What he's after are peers, not subjects. What he's after are friends, not slaves. And so this kind of, uh, of soul building, where we're fit to be in a fully loving relationship with God, requires time it requires that we be allowed to make evil choices and it allows it has to be that we are allowed also to reject god if that's the choice that we make does god have an exhaustive foreknowledge or a contingent foreknowledge in your opinion i've argued in volume one that god's foreknowledge is contingent on what exists 
presence in Thomism, the system that was developed by Thomas Aquinas, um, a brilliant system, I may add, everything that exists is caused by God. All the causes flow outward from God, and nothing acts upon or causes anything in God. In contrast, um, the view of contingent omniscience use God as actually being caused to experience and know things because he he experiences them in reality. And so he's he's dependent on what exists for the knowledge of what exists instead of um, what exists being dependent on God. One of the reasons that this is important is, for instance, if what exists is dependent on God to cause it to be what it is, then there can't be any free will. Obviously, if God is causing your free act, then it's not your act, and you can't be accountable for it. So the question in Thomism, or the view of Thomas Aquinas is, given that nothing acts upon God, how could he know anything in the world that he doesn't cause? And if everything is caused by God, how could there be any moral accountability or free will? I think it's one of the major gaping holes in the ingenious Thomistic theology that is the mainstay for Catholics um, and a number of scholastically-minded philosophers. Thanks for explaining that. I think one of the more interesting things alongside that is this idea of intelligences, the two basic types of intelligences, personal intelligences and natural intelligences. Could you please explain those and explain how eternal intelligences are not contingent? In Joseph Smith's view, I've written an article on this called uh, The uh, Idea of Pre-Existence in the Development of Mormon Thought. This is a, a stroke of sheer revelation, genius insight that solves so many theological problems. And it is this. Now, there are differing views in Mormonism, but Joseph's view was that there are these individual entities that exist from all eternity. They're uncreated. In fact, Joseph says there's, there is nothing about creation about them, <laughs> okay? They're not created in any sense. So the core of what we are the intelligent part, the mind of man, I'm using Joseph Smith's words, is not created by God, neither could it be, because by its very nature, it simply exists. And so the eternal part of us is something that was never created, and it has some inherent qualities. If we look at, for instance, the book of Abraham, chapter 3, we see that some intelligences are more intelligent than others, and God is more intelligent than all of the intelligences. These intelligences has had the ability to make choices. They had the ability to um, basically choose whether or not to move forward. And so I, I'm, I'm adopting Joseph Smith's view, and I'm asserting that this is Joseph Smith's view, I've looked at it and I think I've got the, you know, the, the basic documentation and, and uh, sources to show that this is in fact Joseph Smith's view. There are other views that have been asserted in Mormon history, including the Orson Pratt's view, that there is this stuff called intelligences and then God individuates from this mass intelligence, individual intelligences, so that intelligences as individuals would have a beginning. Um, there are a number of other views of intelligences that I could elucidate, but those are the primary two views. Um, but I think Joseph Smith's view is by far the better view, um, not merely because it's Joseph Smith's, but because of um, the 
problems that it solves. And I think that it's one of the most powerful ideas ever expressed in human history. I tend to agree with you on that. I think that um, Joseph Smith's view accurately and succinctly resolves the question that people typically ask is why would this, ha why would God create me to be this way if um, he is good, etc. And I think that, that that view is a good resolution for that. My next question has to deal with what you consider to be the most common ob objection to uh, the problem of evil, which you cite as uh, God's omnipotence. Can you talk a bit about what it means for God to be omnipotent and how an accurate view of this renders the the problem to the problem of evil irrelevant? The, the standard classical Christian view, the Jewish view, and the view virtually among all Muslims is that God is omnipotent or all-powerful in the sense that he can do anything that is logically possible. So if you express something that can be done and it doesn't involve a contradiction, God can do it. Um, that's why people are always asking, can God lift or can he create a rock that's too big for him to lift? Because creating a large rock is not impossible and lifting rocks is not impossible. But the notion that God could create a rock that is too large for himself to lift seems to be impossible or at least paradoxical. The, the bottom line is, is that on that view, there are no logical limitations to God's power. However, uh, philosophers writing in the analytic tradition in the 20th century um, have articulated a number of things that God can't do uh, and he couldn't be expected to do. God couldn't be expected to bring about my free acts because if he did, they wouldn't be my acts and they wouldn't be free. God can't be expected to change the past. What's past is done and over with and doesn't have access to change it. Now, if one adopts the view that God is timeless, God can change the past just as much as he can change the future. And I think that creates issues for both timelessness and, and the nature of the past on, on the view that God is timeless. Also, God doesn't have to be able to do anything that's inconsistent with his own property. So, for instance, if God really truly is good, God doesn't have to be able to do evil things in order to, to be God. So we would, I would put these limitations on what God can do. The past is fixed. He doesn't have to be able to change the past or bring about any world that's inconsistent with what has occurred in the past. So, for instance, it was once the case that God could have stopped Abraham Lincoln from giving the Gettysburg Address, but it's now given, and he, he's not going to wipe out the monument. <laughs> in Washington, D.C. by changing the past. God um, also has, has to be able to be free. And so there are some worlds that he simply um, doesn't have open to him. And because we are free, the future can't already be made. It can't already be in the cards. And so God can't be expected to have power to know the future. Now, that's just another way of saying that that God's knowledge of the future has to be limited in some sense to make sense of free will. But those are the basic limitations, I think, that, that are required. Um, but the fact that God doesn't have to be able to change the past also entails that God does not have to be able to create out of nothing or ex nihilo in order to be all-powerful. 
because the fact that the universe has already and always existed would mean that at any given time, the existence of the universe is already a past fact, and God doesn't have to have power to change that in order to be omnipotent. So the fact that God organizes rather than creates out of nothing does not suggest that God is not all-powerful. So I, I use a different term than, than omnipotent. I use the term almighty or maximally powerful. God is as powerful as it's logically possible to be, um, but logical possibility and physical possibility impose limitations on what God can bring about. And I think that's a good way to put it. And it, it flows very nicely with your view on omniscience as well with contingent foreknowledge of possibilities rather than exhaustive foreknowledge of everything that will happen. I'd like to shift now to talking a bit about agape theodicy, because I think that this is perhaps the most valuable contribution that I gained. Could you talk about what the primary focus of agape theodicy is? Sure, agape is the Greek word for charitable love, the kind of love that God has for us and that he asks us to have for him and for one another. The focus of agape theodicy is that the most valuable thing that is possible for us to achieve are fully loving relationships. And within the gospel, the most fully loving relationship is the relationship of unity of the divine persons in the Godhead. Reading John 17 and a number of other scriptures, here's the amazing truth. We've been invited into this relationship to share fully the love and unity that the divine persons have. So the same relationship that Christ and the Holy Ghost have with the Father, they've invited us to have. This type of love, however, requires that we learn to love in a divine way. Right now, we don't know how to do that. We're incapable of doing that because we've got a lot of developing to do. And so um, the agape theodicy is a soul-building theodicy with the ultimate goal to be able to be fully deified in divine love. And the purpose of life is to give us an opportunity to more fully learn to love and express our love and to be able to um, invite others into love with us. And so the focus of the agape theodicy is the type of relationship that God seeks to have with us. And um, the kinds of requirements of genuine relationship that are necessary. What does God have to do in order to achieve that purpose? And one of the things he has to do is leave us free in, a liber in the sense of libertarian free will to be able to choose whether to have a relationship with him and with each other. The amazing thing is that it requires even that we be able to learn to love our enemies. Maybe this is the greatest challenge that's ever been issued to human beings. Jesus did not hesitate to command us. And by command, I don't, he's not giving a military command. He is assisting us to learn to love, but he's commanded us to love our enemies. And this is something that we're going to have to work on because the, the truth is that we learn the most from the people who challenge us the most. It's easy to love people that are easy to love. And there's a lot to be learned from that. But we don't have to change to do that. I mean, people who are easy to love, we're going to naturally love, and we don't really have to grow to do it. The ones that teach us the most are the ones that take us so far out of our comfort zone that it's really, really uncomfortable. In fact, sometimes it just feels like we've been totally betrayed or the evil that exists is so severe that it's just impossible. 
This kind of enemy love that we've been commanded, however, teaches us that the people who have the most to teach us are the ones who challenge us the most. And it teaches us that virtually everyone in our lives is a possible angel to give us the opportunity to learn how to love, to express our kindness, and to move forward into greater relationship. And the ones who teach us the most, again, are those who are really, really difficult to love. Are we morally responsible for other people when we love them? I'm gonna, I'm gonna say this in two different ways. The answer is yes, we're deeply morally accountable for other people to treat them um, properly, but love of another is not done out of a sense of moral duty. When I love my children, I don't love them because I have a moral duty to love them. I love them because it's a full-blooded choice of heart to love them with everything that I am. It's the same in my relationship with God. It's a choice to love. And so this kind of love cannot be something that we do out of duty or merely because we're morally obligated to do so. If I, if I, told my wife, I love you because I have a moral duty to do so, I think that she might feel like I don't love her much. <laughs> and the reason for that is <clears throat> that love really is an expression, the deepest expression of who we are, what we are, what we choose, what we value. Love is the fullest expression of our humanity. And so when we love, it's not out of a sense of duty or because I have an obligation. I do it gladly. When I, when I do things for my children and my wife, I don't do it begrudgingly because I'm required to do so. I do it with delight. I'm happy to do it. I do it because I love them. And there's a huge difference between these two ways of being. And so, yes, we are. that doesn't mean we don't have deep moral obligations for others. We do. We're obligated to love them. But a truly loving person doesn't love simply because we're obligated to do so. What conditions does a person or, or what environment does a person have to be in in order to learn how to love? Well, it will differ for everyone, right? I mean, we at least have to be in a challenging world. It, we can't live in what uh, John Hick, a, a really great English philosopher who passed away recently, we can't be in an, an hedonic paradise. We can't be in a paradise where, where you know, knives are, are strong and work when we want to spread butter or when we want to cut meat, but they, they turn to rubber when we want to use them to harm a person. We, we have to live in a world with consistent regularities, laws that we can rely upon and consistencies. And the, the kind of world that we're called to um, and that we've consented to is one that challenges us with all kinds of of real opposition to, you know, what we would prefer the world to be. The truth is that it's not merely the kind of evil people. There are truly heinous things that have been done. When we think of the, the not just the mass murderers of Pol Pot and Stalin and Hitler, and I could go on and on and on, but people who torture little children and, and, and who, who rape and beat women and children it just, you know, when we stare the truth about human evil in the face, it's it's not merely not a pretty picture. It's a gut-wrenching picture and one that I suggest is difficult and that we ought to be deeply uncomfortable with. 
Yeah, I totally see where you're coming from there. And I think that that's a great explanation. My next question is about what you call the plan of agape. Could you explain what you mean by the term plan of agape and then transition into talking about the Felix culpa or the happy fall? Sure. The plan of agape is, is God's plan that's laid out in the LDS scriptures, whereby God explains to us why we need to confront opposition in order to appreciate um, what is good. We must know the bitter to know the sweet. This is stated both by Lehi and 2 Nephi 2. It's stated also in the book of Moses. It's also stated in DNC 29. This kind of approach to evil is expressed in multiple um, places, but it's the same view. We could have gone to a world where there was no sin. That was essentially the plan, as I understand it, that Satan was presenting. I'll make sure that everybody returns because they never really confront a world where there's a possibility of being evil or sin. Um, immediately, God saw two things. One is that um, that kind of world would not really work because it would deprive of us of the kind of libertarian free will necessary for our growth. But the second is, ironically, the plan is impossible. It can't be the case that we take away free will and, and still have the possibility of genuine love. The possibility of being deified, of accomplishing God's purposes, is impossible in a world where there is no evil or, or confrontation. And so the plan of agape includes God's plan to allow us to confront evils, but it also includes the atonement of Jesus Christ. The atonement of Christ just is God's plan to overcome evil. Because Christ atoned, we have the capacity to be forgiven and to forgive. We are not stuck in our past. The essence of atonement is that we aren't stuck with what's already been. We're not stuck with who we are. We're not stuck in our past. We're free to create ourselves anew. We're free to be born again. We're free to be a different person. And this is essential to God's plan. And so God, the atonement of Christ makes it possible by making it so that we can heal the relationships that have been harmed. And the essence of atonement is to heal interpersonal relationships. And so the atonement is essential to God's plan of agape. Um, there are a number of other reasons. I mean, essentially what Christ has done is a rescue operation. It's as if though we're all in the world and we're, we're all about to be wiped out. Um, there's no salvation for us. Um, we're facing a, a, a deadly pandemic or, or a bomb that's going to destroy the entire world and Christ shows up. But in order to save us from the pandemic or the bomb, he has to take on the greatest danger and pain. And in doing so is the one to whom we owe the greatest gratitude for the possibility of, be, of being free. The, and in fact, the Book of Mormon says it's because of the atonement that we're free to choose. The bottom line is, is that the atonement of Christ is the very centerpiece of the plan of agape um, or God's purpose for us in creation. How do you respond to those who object to agape theodicy because there is this assertion that not that not most people will hear about Christ in their lifetime? Yeah, and it, it's twofold, and that is that ob obviously Joseph Smith solved what I call the soteriological problem of evil, 
the soteriology is is simply um, a theory of salvation or the way that we're saved from what would damn us and destroy us so what's happened is god has undertaken to save us from all those things that would destroy us he has undertaken to make it so that there's the capacity of overcoming and so in the end the the purpose of an agape theodicy isn't to um, bring us into the church that can happen or, or into the gospel that can happen after life and and god's purpose is that virtually everyone will be joined in a in a familial chain to be deified but it can't be that the purpose for everyone is to hear about christ or to join the church or to hear about the gospel during their lifetime because frankly the vast majority of people who live will never get that possibility but that doesn't mean that the purpose of life isn't consistent with the agape theodicy because the purpose of life is to learn and to learn one thing in particular to love each other so the purpose that we have in life is to heal our relationships to make of ourselves kinder better people to learn to love with greater capacity everyone who's ever been born has that challenge at least if they live a sufficient amount of time the agape theodicy posits that those who don't live a sufficient amount of time nevertheless consented to come to this world because before this world they had already progressed to the point where all they really needed was a body in order to be a deified so they didn't need these kinds of challenges in order to be fit for the full relationship with god that makes them fully divine but these people are the perfect volunteers in god's plan to serve us to learn to love one another by the challenges that we have in in confronting their early death by the challenges that they have that allow us to act kindly toward them so they serve an essential part in god's plan of agape god can accomplish his purposes without these the little ones the the vulnerable ones who die even before they get much of a start on life and they're frankly if you look at the history of the world that they they may well be um, the majority of people who have ever existed yeah that's a very good point and a very good explanation at this point i'd like to transition to talking about the atonement because this is really what this whole thing centers on right because christ atonement enables all of this to happen. Could you please differentiate between a symbolic or metaphorical expression of atonement and a theory of atonement? So a symbolic expression is something that gives us a word picture that, or, or just a, a way of seeing that reveals something, some truth about the atonement. So if, let me take, for instance, the ransom theory. The ransom theory is that God is buying back our souls out of slavery or, and redeeming us. So we're redeemed out of slavery. Um, or we're, we're, and, and as the theory developed, he's actually paying off the devil to save us from hell. Okay, But it, if we go much past this symbolism, it gets really nonsensical because obviously God doesn't have to pay off the devil. He doesn't owe anything. And turning the relationships that we have into monetary transactions is a huge mistake in my view. I argue why in, in second volume of exploring Mormon thought and explain it further in the fourth volume, but it's really essential to see that there is something true that is about this way of um, giving us a metaphor or simile for the atonement. 
it is true that we're saved and released from sin. We are freed from our former life. We are bought in a sense that God has paid the price, not a monetary price, but being in, it's difficult to be in relationship with us. It's hard to be in relationship with us. And sometimes it's very painful to be in relationship with us. And yet God and Christ are willing to do that. Now, atonement also has to explain why Christ is uniquely qualified to do the atonement in a way that doesn't include the, the Father and the Holy Ghost, because they did not atone in the same way that Christ did. And so a theory of atonement is one that, that is an adequate explanation for why Christ's suffering and his suffering uniquely serves to release us from our past, serves to release us from the culpability of our sins and makes forgiveness possible. And what it has to explain is why the suffering of Christ is somehow operative in bringing about this forgiveness and healing of relationships, which is a strange thing because, you know, it, it would be a very strange way of looking at things to say that in order for me to forgive you, I've got to punish someone <laughs> so that I feel good about forgiving you which is what some of the primary theories of atonement actually assert. The, the primary theory of atonement is the penal substitution theory. I, I think it is simply adopted. It's actually a theory that was developed by John Calvin. I don't think most Mormons even recognize that. And it's a, basically a, a theory that is adopted in light of his, of his remarkable views on um, grace alone and, and uh, predestination. It's something that ought not be accepted by Mormons, but when I listen to Mormons speak generally in Sunday school and elsewhere, this is the kind of, of theory that they adopt in approaching the atonement. And in my view, it's a huge mistake because not only is the theory morally objectionable, it's simply inadequate and doesn't really answer any of the questions, but that's what a theory does. It answers the questions that we ask about the scriptures and what they assert about Jesus that because of his death and resurrection, we are loose from sin and death, and we are, it is possible to be forgiven for what we do. And we have to ask ourselves, well, okay, what, what is it about the life of a person who walked around the Palestinian countryside 2,000 years ago that has any effect on me today in being forgiven and being able to forgive and being free of sin? And a theory of atonement ought to explain that. Could you please explain what the penal substitution theory is and then also explain what problems exist with it? Because I do think it's really important. I've heard a lot of the monetary language used in Sunday school and other places to describe atonement as well. So the penal substitution theory is that Christ pays the price demanded by the, the angry father. There's this wrath of God notion. The father wants to exercise his wrath against us, but the loving son intervenes and convinces the unloving father to not punish us. And in order to not be punished, he requires this, this son to undergo the punishment that we otherwise deserve because of our sin. So we punish an innocent person in the place of, of a, a guilty person. And for some reason, this is supposed to make it possible for this father to forgive us. Obviously, there are lots of questions about that view. Why is the father so angry? Why isn't he loving like the son? Why is the father requiring that someone suffer in order to achieve his forgiveness? Why is it necessary that anybody suffer at all? What is, the, what is it that Christ's suffering is supposed to pay? 
what it is that it's supposed to do to convince the father to not punish us. And so um, when we get right down to it, I think that the, the penal substitution theory is just not something that is going to work. And at least I can tell you it does not work for me. And I think that if we stop and think about it carefully, we'll see that it has numerous problems. Those problems include, and I'm going to just list six of them, there are numerous more, it erroneously assumes that justice is a personified absolute, like a platonic absolute that makes demands, and that God is bound by this kind of a, a personified platonic absolute. It posits a conflict between the wrathful father who must be persuaded by his loving son not to punish us. So it creates a real wedge between the father and the son and makes the, the father look pretty bad. It erroneously assumes that it is just to punish an innocent person in the place of a guilty person. I've never been able to figure out how it is that punishing the only person in the history of the universe who truly didn't deserve to be punished in the place of those who did is somehow just and somehow is supposed to operate to make it so that um, we're forgiven. There's really no connection between them that's ever explained in the theory. Um, and if we turn it into a monetary transaction that where Christ has what's known as supererogatory um, merit because he's so great. So what he does, Christ has, has achieved a bank account that is so much larger than he needs that he can spend his capital to pay off our debts. But sin is not like a monetary transaction at all. So for instance, if, and this, this sometimes was actually done in the ancient world, a father has, has um, robbed um, from a person and so what they do is they, they capture the father and the son says, look, my father's guilty, but if you'll just punish me in his place, then, um, you know, I'll, I'm willing to do that because he loves his father so much. And then a third party beneficiary steps in and says, look, he doesn't have enough money. So I'll pay the debt. The innocent person, um, the son gets off, you know, doesn't have to pay the debt. And the, guilt, the guilty person gets off scot-free because the person who doesn't owe the debt is paying us. And that may work for a monetary transaction. But let's say that instead what's happened is that the father has, has murdered a, a young girl. And the son steps in and says, look, don't, don't punish my father, punish me. And then the benefactor steps in and says, well, I'm going to pay an amount that will be sufficient to, to make it so that you don't need to punish either the son or the father. And the problem is that we don't allow monetary payments for those kinds of crimes. In medieval law, they did, but we don't, and, and, and we ought not. By our lights, that's not just totally unjust. It would be totally inappropriate. But that's the kind of view that's assumed in the penal substitution theory. So it assumes that the guilt and righteousness can be imputed or transferred from a guilty person to an innocent person and vice versa. So what it does is it adopts a uh, a Protestant view of imputation of righteousness. So what happens is Christ is righteous, we're not. So he imputes our righteous, his righteousness to us so that even though we're not righteous, we're regarded as righteous because he, he wants us to be regarded as righteous. The truth is, is we're still sinners, we're still totally evil, but because Christ has decided that he's going to use his merit to, to cover our guilt, somehow we're, we're not guilty anymore. It's just a total fiction, and it's a major problem, I think, in the theories of, of um, 
salvation by grace alone in the Protestant view of things. And yet that's what's assumed in the penal substitution theory. I don't think Mormons understand that they're adopting the Protestant view of salvation by grace alone in the penal substitution theory. Further, it provides no reason that guilt must be punished and why God cannot just forgive us without requiring a third party who committed no sin to suffer. I mean, it's not just that Christ, he, he didn't come in and pay a debt. He was hung on a Roman cross. He was nailed to it. It's one of the most painful deaths that is imaginable for a human being. This is not a monetary payment. And what Christ did to, to how is it that, that making somebody else suffer makes it so I'm forgiven? I mean, if, if, if we took and hung the, the, the son on a cross in order to, for the father not to be punished in the son's place, we would look at that and just say, that's, that's just reprehensible. That doesn't work. Um, and it also erroneous, erroneously analogizes sin to a monetary debt. It isn't a debt. So the penal substitution theory has a number of problems. And I don't think that, that Mormons understand the, the basic Calvinistic assumptions that are built into it. It's just not a good fit with the Mormon scriptures overall, or the Bible, I would add. And so I think it ought to be rejected. But it's what I hear propounded over and over again in Mormon discourse. Could you please explain what the Mormon theories of atonement are with particular attention to the compassion theory of atonement? Yeah, I mean, in my book, I outline several different theories of atonement that have been suggested in Mormon thought. So Mormonism is kind of unique, and so it has, it has spawned a number of, of different ways of explaining the atonement. So one is one that was suggested by Leon Skousen, that is that the, uh, the intelligences demand justice. They're unjust to do so, but they demand justice for the evils that have been done. And so the son steps in to undertake to um, essentially be crucified to satisfy the demand, the unjust demands of the intelligences. And um, in, in doing so, the intelligence has come to love the son because of the amazing sacrifice that he's made. Um, the, the problem is, is that it's, this view isn't scriptural at all, and it really doesn't explain anything that a theory of atonement ought to explain. Another is what I would call the self-rejection moral theory of atonement. Christ suffered to give us an example so that we can accept ourselves and love ourselves in a way that's appropriate. This is a theory of a moral exemplar theory where Christ is a moral example for us to follow. But there are a lot of moral examples in human history besides Christ. And I, I think the bottom line is, is that while Christ, it's true that Christ is, a, is this kind of moral example, it really doesn't explain how, it, you know, why Christ is suffering and how his suffering is related to being forgiven. I mean, it doesn't even involve suffering as a practical matter. Uh, the empathy theory of atonement is that Christ, because of his human experience, is in a better position to judge us because he's experienced what we've experienced. Any person who's actually walked in the shoes of the person they're judging is in a better position to judge. And I think it's a good theory for explaining why Christ is the appropriate judge, but it doesn't explain anything about atonement and how we're forgiven or why somebody suffers and how that's related to forgiving us. Um, the divine infusion theory is that we're blessed with the light of Christ. And what this does is lifts us out of a state 
um, where we are so fallen that we can't get out of it on our own. And so Christ lifts us far enough out of our um, state of sin or our culpability where we can make free choices so that Christ's light makes us free to choose in a way that otherwise we would not be free to choose. And I think that everything that this theory says is also correct, but it doesn't explain anything about Christ's suffering and how it's related to being forgiven. So on to the theory that I've proposed is the compassion theory. Um, it comes from the Latin word compassion or compassione, and depending on what uh, um, year of Latin you speak. <laughs> and what it means is literally to suffer with or in the, uh, in, in not merely the sense that we're both suffering, but I suffer your sufferings. That's what compassion is. And so what the compassion theory is saying is that um, there, there are different ways in which God experiences our suffering. God is omniscient, so when we're in pain, he knows that we're in pain. And he, he feel, in a sense, our pain is directly felt by him. But it's still not the same as being our pain. Um, so, for instance, when I'm in a bank, if there's a bank robbery and somebody pulls a gun and points it at me, God knows that I'm in a bank. Somebody's pulled a gun on me and I'm really afraid for my life. And God can experience this, even experience it directly. But God is not afraid for his life in the way that I'm afraid for my life. Um, compassionate suffering, however, is sharing the very pain that we have. What the compassion theory suggests is that we have within us a certain, when we sin, it takes away our light and there is a certain darkness within us. And that through atonement, Christ takes our darkness into his own being and the darkness causes him pain. Like I said, it's painful to be in relationship with us. And because of what happens is we let go of everything that we've done, we let go of our past, we let go of the evils that we've done in repentance. And the pain of that we have experienced is then transferred to Christ and he experiences it directly for him as our pain. But in so doing, he transforms it into light and then shares his light so that we enter into union with each other and we share life the light of Christ could also be called Christ Zoe in Greek, which is his life and light, his energy, power, and intelligence. And so Christ is, we take up life within one another. Christ takes up a boat in us, and we are in Christ. We are literally in one another with a shared life. And this energy of life that enters into us is what truly makes us a Christian. The difference between a Christian and a non-Christian isn't that a Christian believes what Christ said or the kinds of teachings of a Christian church. A Christian is someone in whom the life of Christ has entered as a vivifying force, where the life and light of Christ are then known in the countenance of that person, and that person becomes a reflection of the light of Christ to those that he, she, and all others serve. And so it's an opportunity for us this ties in with the notion of deification. What happens through atonement, at the moment we enter into a relationship with Christ, the darkness is transferred to Christ and he transfers his light to us. He transforms our darkness by his light and we're justified. That is, in Pauline terms, we are in right covenant relationship with Christ. But this is just the beginning of relationship. The process of sanctification 
or growth in the light then begins. And we grow in the light until the perfect day. So we grow from one degree of light to another over the period of our lives. It may not be a, a linear progression, by the way. We may regress sometimes in the light. But over the time that we have, we have growth in the light in the process of sanctification until the fullness of light when we're fully deified because Christ's light is, found, is fully found within us. We have a fullness, as the scriptures say. And so that's essentially the, the compassion theory of atonement. Is it wrong to find love within the suffering? Um, I, don't, I don't know what you mean by wrong, but I would say this. What we, what we find in the suffering, and I, I, I'm going to address this in two different ways. We, we suffer as human beings. My experience is that while we're going through the pain and suffering, whatever the nature of that pain and suffering is, it, it, it hurts. It, it's hard for us. And it's rotten. But after we have time to look back on what we've gone through, after we get through it, my experience is, is that people are generally very grateful for the experiences that they've had, even the worst experiences of their lives, because of what they learned, because of the person that it made of them, because of the growth that occurred. I hear statements like, I wouldn't change anything because of what I learned and, what I, I, and how I grew from that experience. So, no, in that sense, we can be grateful for every experience. It's like Joseph Smith said, all these things shall give them experience and shall be for their good. What that means is that literally everything we experience can be for our good. Um, and, and human experience in and of itself is inherently valuable. Um, it is wrong to think that suffering in and of itself per se is something good. I mean, if that were the case, we'd all be morally obligated to impose suffering on others. And I just don't think that we have that obligation. I would say that's an evil thing. My last question for you um, is at the end of your book, in the conclusion, you talk about how to heal evil. And I think that that's one of the most interesting parts, um, just because I, I do really like what you said about agape theodicy, but I also think it's really important to emphasize the individual solutions that we can all take and that we can apply into our lives directly, not to sound cheesy. Could you talk just briefly about what you think it means to heal evil? The, the notion of healing is that there's a sickness obviously and that we must um, somehow overcome this sickness and we do that by healing but it's not merely sicknesses in our body that we're healing um, every single one of us that has lived sufficiently long have done things that violate our own moral standards every single one of us have done something that was less than love in relation to others. And oftentimes we've done things that are not merely less than love, they're really truly evil. We've harmed other people. Thus, when we repent, one of the things that is required of us to express our love is to ask forgiveness and then to offer to do whatever is required to heal the relationship. If I've stole some, stolen something from you, I've got to return it. If I'd said something evil about you, I've got to make clear to everyone I said that to that it wasn't true, that it was, it was my evil and not yours. If I've harmed our relationship, if I truly love you, I'm going to do whatever it takes to heal that relationship 
so that we have a close abiding relationship and can be with each other. The, the notion of healing is simply the notion of repentance, doing whatever it takes to heal the relationships that we have with one another. And if it requires restoration, restitution, asking forgiveness, and of course it requires building trust and never doing it again. So the notion of healing relationships is inherent in the very notion of repentance. And I think that the way that it's taught in the church the steps of repentance is a perfect expression of the kind of things that people who truly love each other will do when they've harmed relationships. And, and let's face it, we've all harmed relationships. It's, it, we've all been not merely stupid, at times we've been really rotten. And so it behooves us to see what we have damaged in terms of our relationships with others. In healing the evil, what we do then, we heal the relationships of those that we love the most. And then we expand to those that we will learn to love the most. And then we expand beyond that. And it may be that loving others requires us to then look at way, ways to make their lives better, to make sure that we're not um, in any way pursuing an agenda that would create more pain, suffering, alienation for those people. If our evil is, for instance, racism, it requires that we make clear that we're against racism that we're for everybody being treated with the kind of loving kindness that Christ showed and that kind of loving acceptance. If our evil is that we have been emotionally abusive, it requires us to do whatever is necessary to heal the evil that we've done. And that can look different in every single relationship and what works for one won't work for another. As a parent, I know darn well that what worked for one of my children wouldn't work for another child. And so it's, it's for me to look for inspiration about how I will heal these relationships. It also means that I find ways to alleviate the suffering of others. If they don't have sufficient for their needs, I'm obligated to look after and make sure that they have sufficient for their needs. If it means that they are in pain because of ailments that they have, than a united effort to find cures and to find, for instance, vaccinations for things that kill people. Healing evil in the world means that we express our love for them and most prominently means that we treat everyone in the world as if though they were own, our own beloved family members. So for instance, I've worked an entire lifetime to support my family and I didn't do it because I was obligated to do so. I was happy to do it. I did it out of love every single day. And I can tell you that in healing relationships, I've, at times what it means is we, we do whatever is required of us so that we have the kind of loving abiding relationships that we are fit to be invited into an eternal family with one another. People actually wanna be with us for an eternity. That's an amazing thing. But not merely that, but we're fit to be in the presence of our Father the Son and the Holy Ghost to share the kind of unity and divine love that they have for one another. When we become conduits for the light of Christ and the love of Christ to others, then we are in the path, the covenant path, of healing our relationships and healing the evil in the world. In this way, we participate in the atonement of Christ because we become at one with him. We atone for our, our sins by repenting of them, and we're enabled to repent by the atonement of Christ and what he suffered, because to be in relationship with us is painful. 
It also means recognizing the prices that other people have to pay to be in a relationship and to make sure that we cease all kinds of conduct that exact the kind of price that we that people have to pay to be with us. And some, you know, I think if we're honest with ourselves and we look around and we see the kind of price that we're exacting from those, and especially those we say we love the most, sometimes it's just gut-wrenching to see the kind of changes that we really need to make so that we can be exemplars of Christ and, and conduits of the light of Christ. And so that's what I mean by healing evil. Thanks for sharing that. And thanks for coming on to talk about your book. Um, I'll definitely link it in the description, but could you please tell us the name of the book and where we can find it? Sure. The book is part of the Exploring Mormon Thought series, volume four. This particular book is Exploring Mormon Thought, God's Plan to Heal Evil. Um, it is obtainable through Colford Books. You can get it on Amazon. There are a number of other outlets that will that sell it as well. And uh, you know, if you get it and read it, let me know what you think. Obviously, not everybody is going to agree with me, but I never expected that, and I certainly wouldn't demand that. The whole point is to share with people my best take and then to spur them on to their own thoughts and their own views and their own growth. Awesome. Thank you so much. Hey, it's been a real pleasure speaking with you. Thank you so much for taking the time to, to speak with me. Awesome.